0: Uh, Okay, so let's jump in here. We're just going to go real quickly. Uh, We've been talking about uh, the study of the Mosaic Law and uh, we reflected on why we ought to study it and these were some of the reasons why. Uh, This is an issue that we always have to keep in the forefront of our minds because we are prone to think of the law in terms of its parts and to forget that it is a, a single entity. It's a singularity, but uh, to talk about its complexities requires us to speak in terms of these different, uh, different segments. But we have to be careful that we don't allow these different segments to sort of play into what some might call their theological desires. Those that want to hold on to the moral law, like Seventh-day Adventists uh, and others, uh, and some messianic groups, while on the other hand, uh, recognizing the ceremonial and the judicial are fulfilled and therefore are not obligated in some fashion uh, to observe those. So it's, it's important that we remember we divide them up only to talk about them, not to theologize about them. Because when we theologize, when we think about how does it fit into the broader scheme of God's plans and purposes, we need to think of a law as a single entity. It is the Mosaic Law, not the Mosaic Laws. Okay, well, we've talked about this. Um, and by the way, a thought that occurred to me is this idea of obligation. You know, we're free from, uh, well, not just in this slide, but we are free of its condemnation, we're free of its obligation. And uh, for those who who recognize that, and yet at the same time say, but I find joy in... Uh, observing some things relevant to the Mosaic law, maybe we can talk, rather than talk about keeping the law, observing the law, maintaining of the law, we can talk about celebrating uh, the law, which gives, in my mind, an element of freedom and lack of, of obligation. So that when we have festivals, which are part of the Mosaic law, we celebrate the Passover, In a sense, we don't observe the Passover as a legal requirement, but we celebrate the Passover because of what it symbolizes, what it witnesses to, what it points to, what it reflects on, our deliverance from Egypt, and the joy that we have in doing those things, those traditions and otherwise, that relate to the Passover. But most importantly, the recognition that Yeshua is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So as I was thinking more about this, maybe we use the word celebrate these aspects of the law rather than think in terms of uh, keeping them, observing them, maintaining them, obeying them, that kind of a thing. But we all have to sort of navigate through these waters. So, uh, And then another one of these errors is not only dividing the law, but sort of elevating portions of the law over others. It is one entity. They're all... Um, uh, equal in their status and uh, so we have to be careful that we don't do that as well we talked about some of the important um, the, imp- the important aspects of the law in terms of its its correctiveness in terms of how it wielded Israel which was a family of tribes into a nation and would be uh, a mechanism by which Israel would be made famous in the sight of the nations we also were thinking about Uh, how the law and grace interconnect, intertwine. They're distinct, but yet there is connections. So we saw that, number one, Israel did not deserve the law. The law is a good thing. Paul says this in Romans 10. The law is holy, just, and good. So we're not deprecating the law here. Uh, Even when we speak of those things that appear negative, they have a purpose in their negativity. And in that regard... They serve a ultimately a good purpose. So uh, Israel receives the law, and they receive it as a gift. They don't earn the right to receive the law; they are given it as a gift on Mount Sinai. The Lord cause, calls Moses up to the mountain, and He gives it to them, to Him. And in fact, it says that He engraved the Ten Commandments on the on the stone with what is referred to as the finger of God. And we know from Scripture, too, written on both sides of those tablets. So this is purely God's gift uh, to Israel. Uh, So it was something they did not deserve, something that was a gift. Um, The law did not annul what was previously given to Israel by way of the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant, as we've talked about, is an unconditional covenant. It's an umbrella covenant. It's a covenant that speaks of the promise of a land with its specific dimensions. What we know today is a portion of its entirety, but the land of Israel. And there, it's really greater in dimensions than what Israel uh, presently occupies or possesses. The Gaza Strip, for example, is included. What is referred to as the West Bank, what we would refer to as Judea and Samaria, are also included in the promised land. And then there are even broader strokes to it because the Wadi El Arish is in portions of the Sinai and the Euphrates to the north encompasses portions that uh, today are in Syria. So today the land of Israel is less than the full boundaries, uh, but nevertheless it's a significant uh, portion of it. So uh, the Abrahamic covenant promised Israel a land, promised Israel a a descendant who would sit on the throne of David who promised Israel untold blessing. And what God does is he takes these three subcategories of the Abrahamic covenant and he enlarges them, he magnifies them, he solidifies them by establishing independent covenants with each of these elements. So we find the land covenant, Deuteronomy 30 to 32 or so. We find the uh, Davidic covenant in 1st Samuel 7 I think it is and also the book of Chronicles and then we or 2nd Samuel 2nd uh, Samuel 7 I think it is and, uh, and then we have the new covenant which is uh, prophesied by Jeremiah in, in Jeremiah 31 and explained to us in greater meaning in the book of Hebrews so uh, we'll come back to some of these things and then we looked at the law is contrasted with God's grace. Um, it's not uh, a, a, the same as. There is a contrast, but I don't believe it's a harsh contrast. It's distinguishable, but it's it's still uh, relevant to God's grace. So I looked at certain passages in John one seventeen, where it says the law came from Moses, but grace and truth came through Yeshua the Messiah. Um, There's a distinction, but not a harsh contrast. And so I mentioned that in John chapter 1, 14 through 18, we have this ascending sort of revelation given to us about how we connect to God. That is, the God who is invisible is the one we must ultimately receive. So this invisible God that we cannot see is one we must receive. How does God, in order for salvation, so how does God enable... He who is unfathomable, he who is infinite, he who is immutable, unchanging, um, that one who is beyond us, how is it possible that we can actually receive him and know him? And this is an issue of of theology, of the study of God, and down the road I'd like to get into some of these things because it's really really fun things to think about. But uh, our God who is invisible also is a God who has made himself known and made himself visible. Sometimes he's made himself visible through what is referred to as theophanies, God appearances. And so these appearances of God are means by which God is condescending to our limitations to make himself more readily perceptible so for example the uh pillar of fire and the cloud by day the pillar of fire by night the shekinah glory is a theophany it's a manifestation of god some have said the, a manifestation of god in a localized uh, place so there is the shekinah glory it's a way it's a small way in which god who is invisible becomes visible to us um sometimes for example when moses sees the bush that is burning but is not being consumed um god is manifesting his presence there uh, the angel of the lord though i believe is a a manifestation of the messiah prior to his incarnation in john chapter 1 can be thought of as a theophany an appearance of god god makes himself known shows himself uh more readily to us than in other instances. Um, he makes himself known through dreams and visions sometimes as well. And we read in the book of Daniel uh, different things of that sort, and different ways in which he is perceived, seen. Uh, but he is invisible. And yet he revealed himself in the law, which is a good thing. We learn of his character. We learn of his Uh, his mannerisms, we learn of what he values and what's important to God and therefore ought to be important to us. So he revealed himself in the law, but more fully, John tells us, and most fully, he became one of us. And he took on human form, and now the invisible is purely visible. And somehow there is God walking among us. Um, And so the arguments for the deity of Messiah are... Uh, are clear you know individuals bow down and worship him he never says you know don't do this I'm a man like you as though although uh, angels do do that but not uh, Messiah Yeshua accepts that worship and he does the kinds of things that only God can do such as he forgives sin and that's what raises this big question you know Uh, only God can forgive sin you're blaspheming because now you're claiming to be God and They at least understood what Yeshua uh, was meaning to do. But he became a man, and thus he is revealing God in a more clear way. And so in Yeshua, verse 14, we see God. We don't see him in all of his glory, as it were, but the glory of God, the reality of God, is there uh, manifested in Yeshua the Messiah, who is the Word, who is with God, who is God. And thus, in verse 14, uh, in Yeshua, we we see God. Now, we can't uh, scrutinize many of these things further than that. And there is a danger in pushing the limits too far in terms of what it is we we understand and uh, arrive at. But therefore, God came to give us grace so that we can receive his grace. And in receiving his grace, we receive him. And so Yeshua is the ultimate means, the ultimate mechanism by which we see God, experience him, are forgiven by him and experience uh, and experience his grace. Uh, I think they're distinct. I think they're different. Uh, I don't know if we can if I'm prepared to state a principle about the Shekinah glory as such, but Shekinah means dwelling. So the Shekinah glory is the dwelling presence of God. And, okay, so what do we mean by that? Um, It's hard to say exactly what we mean. We have a sense of it. Uh, I'm sort of leaving things a little hazy because I don't want to go down that road because I want to stay in the issue of the law. But for the most part, we see that uh, the Shekinah glory was God's presence among Israel in leading them through uh, the wilderness and wh- or through the desert. And while that's true, at the same time, God is meeting with Moses and he's speaking to Moses face to face, intimately, personally, and directly. And Moses is relating God's revelation to, to the people. So I don't want to say it's the Shekinah of glory is all that there is to the manifestation of God. I'm not suggesting that. But I am just trying to address the issue of God who is invisible has made himself known. In John the focus is he's made himself known in the law, and then he's gone a step further to make himself known in a human being, Yeshua of Nazareth. And therefore in Yeshua we see God and God has done this so that we might receive the fullness the fullness of his grace. And, of course, he says those who receive this, he's given authority uh, to become the children of God. So uh, we looked also at the Gospel of John where we saw while the contrast is there, it ought not to be seen to be harsh um, because in the, the law there's a revelation of grace and in the law there's a revelation of truth. And so these are instances where Yeshua makes reference to the law as having give, given pointers, evidence, uh, witness to things that have to do with the life of Messiah. And so uh, John three fourteen we took a look at that. John chapter 5, verse 46. And uh, with the s- snake lifted up in the wilderness. And uh, in John chapter 6, verse 32, where he says... The bread in the wilderness, the manna, was not the true bread. It was not the reality. It was a witness to what would be the reality. It was a pointer, it was a platform, it was a preparation, but it wasn't the reality. Similarly, the Mosaic Law is not the reality. It is preparation for the reality. It's a pointer to the reality. And we'll talk more about what it is, but you can see how the stage is sort of being set uh, when we look at these passages in John. So the meaning of John chapter 1, where he says the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Yeshua, is that the law was not the reality or the embodiment of grace and truth. It was a witness to it. It was in preparation for it. It was a leading into the fullness of grace and truth. Yeshua alone is the fullness of or embodiment of grace and truth. The law was a witness to Uh, grace and truth. That's why I say we don't want to make it a harsh contrast, but we do want to recognize there's a distinction of course. So Yeshua is the fulfillment, not the contradiction of the law. I think this helps us to understand something of what's going on in Messiah's own words in Matthew 5. It came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So he's come not to contradict it, um, but he's come to be the full embodiment of of it, And we'll come to the Matthew passage. I just want to lay some foundations for us to get there. Now, in Romans chapter 6, we saw that these three passages speak about the relationship of law to grace. In Romans chapter 6, and this is where we, we were uh, in. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Because in, in this passage, in verses 14 and 15... Paul writes, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? So what does this mean? That we're not under law, but under grace. Does it mean that we should sin because we're not under law, but under grace? He says, by no means. Because we have died unto sin when we invited Messiah into our lives. We died with him. And so His Paul's whole point is that when we receive Yeshua when his spirit dwells within us we become united to him and this is one of Paul's big uh, theological truths that we are one with Messiah so his most common prepositional phrase is the little uh, is the word in Jesus in Yeshua in Jesus in Messiah that little word "in." speaks volumes to Paul. To be in Messiah means to be united to him. We are connected to him. So when we are connected to him, we are connected to him in death. We're connected to him in resurrection. So that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he becomes our righteousness. Because we don't have a righteousness of our own. With which we can present ourselves before God and say, "Lord, we are here's our righteousness. You can accept us." We have to be united with Messiah in order to have Messiah's righteousness. Paul does not just teach that his righteousness is solely given to us. Theologians speak of God's righteousness, Yeshua's righteousness being imputed to us. That word means. To be not only imparted, but sort of fused to us. So that when we stand before the Lord, he sees us through the glory and righteousness of Messiah. He does see us. It's not as if he doesn't see us. He does see us. But he sees us connected to his son and that's what provides us with salvation. That's why it's not of works that anyone should boast, because it's his righteousness. And therefore, in 1 Corinthians, it says, he is our reconciliation. He is our redemption. He is our righteousness. Now, if he's our righteousness, that means that the law, to whatever degree we might believe we are obeying it, those who are saying uh, we still need to obey the law as Jewish believers or whatever, we have to remember that no matter what you do that's good it's messiah's righteousness that enables you to stand before him, and whatever goodness you do that is goodness that is credible before God is a righteousness he has enabled you to manifest it's never of ourselves so that needs is that for Paul is like the foundation piece of everything he reveals. So when he uses this phrase in Romans chapter six, we are not under law, but under grace. And then in verse 15, he repeats the phrase, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace. The question then is what does it mean to be under law or under grace? What does he mean by being under something? Now, what I was trying to say a few weeks ago is the phrase, under grace, only appears here. We don't have it anywhere else. And one of the hermeneutical principles, it's amazing that when you deal with the law, because it's such a complex issue, that touches on various dominoes. And that's why I say theology is a fun thing, because what you believe about one thing here is never isolated from what it impacts on what it might mean for something down here that we may not have thought about so we think here and we say I like that and then as we think about it further we say uh oh it hits this domino that I also like I can't have both and so we have to ask ourselves which domino may we not want to have maybe this domino that we wanted to have all along we say we don't really want or maybe this idea that we had is not the right idea so Uh, When we think about these phrases, you know, we can sort of just use our own common sense under. But remember, the Bible is written in Greek and Hebrew and, of course, portions in Aramaic. So if we're going to try to understand these words, we need to have a sense of what the Greek might mean here. Now, the reason we need to have that kind of an understanding is because you never have in language A one-to-one correspondence between words. The word, for example, I was preaching last Saturday, last Shabbat, on being a peacemaker. The Hebrew word for peace, translated peace in English, shalom, doesn't mean peace. The way the English word peace is oftentimes understood. So what word do we use? It really means to be whole, to be well, to be full, to be healthy. To be wise, to be good. You know, what word do we use if we have to use one word? And so we like the word peace because if we think about being, at, being whole, being well, being full, the result is we have a sense of peace, of rest, of things being right. But it doesn't mean peace in the sense of the absence of war. Shalom is not a negative word. So, if we say being at peace means you've signed a peace treaty, therefore you're not in conflict, you're not enemies, That you're talking about what it is not. And when you use the word not, you're, you're telling us this is a negative word. Nothing wrong about negative words. For example, we speak of God being infinite. That's a negative word. It means, in means not. So, being infinite means not finite. But if we want to ask, what does it mean to not be finite? we struggle with that you know we say okay the word eternal but the word eternal has a linear thought to it no beginning and no end but being infinite is not just a two-dimensional term it's a big term it's a three-dimensional term because he's infinite in every respect not just in terms of linearness he's infinite in terms of his character he's imminent in terms of his relationship with others Um, so infinite, infinite C, infinite C or infiniteness is bigger than just eternal. If we're thinking of eternal as no beginning and no end, but we can't think of the, all these things we're limited in terms of what languages we use. So we use something, but we then have to say, but let me explain this and we'll take the next hour to talk about what eternity means, you know? And now we come back to infinite, and that's what we mean when we say God is infinite. So we're limited in how we talk about things. So negative terms are helpful when we speak about God being immutable. It means he doesn't change. Well, what does it mean not to change? We could say it means he's constant. But someone might say, but doesn't that mean he's static? And we say, well, well, but being static means there's no development. God doesn't develop in the sense of growing, but he does reveal more and more. He does do different things. This is not the only thing God is up to. But I say this. I mean, this universe is probably, I mean, we don't know for sure because the revelation of the Bible deals with this universe. But are there other things God is doing that he hasn't told us about? And if if he is... That wouldn't disturb us, would it? I mean, after all, he can do what he would like to do. That's consistent with his character. But again, we're forced to a limitation. So when we speak about God being immutable, not changing, what we're really talking about is God can always be trusted because he's not going to say one thing and do something else, You know, unless it's for our benefit. Like in Jonah, I'm going to judge the city in 40 days. But then they repent. You know what? I'm not going to. So there is a, dare I say it, a change. But it's a change for our benefit, you know, and for the people's benefit. We don't want to go down that road, but I'm just saying that terms are funny things. So when we use the word under, we might intuitively think, I know what that means. But ultimately, we have to come back to Paul writes this in Greek. So we want to know what is the Greek term that he used? But in one sense, we don't need to know the Greek term per se, because it may be a simple term, just like we have the word under, you know, as a pretty simple term. But another thing we can do, whether we know Greek or not, is to see where else the phrase or term is used, and to see if that helps us to uncover its meaning. Everybody, follow me? As I used to say to my students, don't follow me or I'll call the cops. <laughs> Are you sleeping? No, I know you're not. So, meditating, meditating. that's it. There you go. I like that. I have to remember that. So, uh, when we use the phrase, and Clint was not sleeping. I was just picking on him. Um, And I warned him about this chair. But, under grace, you know, uh, under grace only appears in these two verses. So, there's no other place we can go to find out what this phrase means. So, we're stuck. On that one but the phrase under law does appear in five or six other places so if they are contrasting phrases we can at least find out what under law means and then we can deduce under grace is something different you know is the opposite of it so I'm just trying to give a little window of how one studies the Bible see so as we're trying to understand law and grace we come to a point where we can actually talk about how do, I, how do you go about learning what the Bible has to say? I mean, I can read and read and read, but how do I scrutinize it? How do I study it? Well, this is one thing we have to sometimes do is compare what the author says in one place with what he says in other places. So the, the general rule is, you first of all, you look at what he says here in the book of Romans, you look for him using the same phrases in the book of Romans. And most likely, but not all the time, that should give us a little window of how he's using the phrase here. We would assume it'll be somewhat consistent, but it doesn't have to be, but we might expect it to be. Then we can go to other books that he wrote, because it's the same author. And if he's using the phrase as similarly as he uses here in other books, that seems to support the notion Ah, now we have a sense of what he means you know and then we can go to other authors and see what they have to say and all of those things sort of feed into giving us a sense of conviction you know of what he means here we're not just left to our own imaginations we we're actually getting uh, some evidence that narrows the options And that's what we want. We want to narrow the options so that we know what Paul meant. Because that's what we're trying to uncover. We're not trying to uncover what we like. We're not trying to uncover what we think is the good answer. We're trying to uncover what did Paul mean when he wrote this. Let me put it another way. When the sports writers for the Boston Herald wrote, the Red Sox won the World Series, they didn't mean they went to war against China. You know, we know what the author's trying to tell us. When you read a newspaper and you read, you know, the Malaysian airline went down, they're trying to look for, you know what's going on. Similarly, we have to believe Paul had an idea in mind that he was trying to convey that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, was guiding him to convey. Now, the process by which that takes place is a whole other conversation of the story. We don't need to get into that. But it's important in light of some of the questions that were raised. If we believe that the Bible is the inspired, God breathed, God produced Word of God, it doesn't matter where we go. You know, it doesn't matter who the author is, whether we know him or not. If all Scripture is inspired, God breathed, God produced, all of it is ultimately God's work. And that's interesting because in the, in the New Covenant Scripture, sometimes you'll read, a writer will say, the Holy Spirit said. And they'll quote something David wrote in the Psalms. Sometimes the New Testament writer will say, and David said. And what we're finding out in these phrases is that the writers of Scripture, though attributing the work to David because he wrote it in the second instance, Ultimately, God was working through David as revealed in the first instance. So we can say, you know, God said, um, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We can say God says that. We could say David says that, because David wrote it. So um, all scripture is inspired by God. So what Paul is saying and I'm looking at 2 Timothy 3.16, what Paul is saying is everything that we consider to be Scripture, with a capital S, being God's Word, has been produced by him. Now, Paul may very well be thinking primarily, although there's no indication of this, the Hebrew Scriptures, but it doesn't matter what he's thinking. Once it is written, As God's revelation to us, it can be bigger than what Paul may have been intending initially. If the text itself will allow us to understand that. So when Peter writes that prophets of old prophesied as the Spirit directed them and uh, moved them, is the phrase that's used in English, as he moved them, it says they wrote things they did not understand. So whatever they understood by what they wrote, God understood something bigger in the, or God was conveying something bigger that would take on clarity as for later readers as the more and more of God's word would be uncovered. But what I'm concerned about is when we don't like something that is revealed in one part of God's word, it hits a domino we don't like and we punt By saying but that was written by an author we don't know who the name is we don't know who he is and somehow depreciating this portion of God's Word now we have a bigger problem than merely the meaning of a text now we're raising questions to a more foundational issue and that is what is the Word of God made up of? so we can only push these things back so far we're assuming here that all 27 books of the Brit Hadashah as we know them is inspired by God and is the word of God. So it doesn't matter where we go. But if we're going to raise that question, now we're raising a more foundational question that requires a whole kind of, another kind of reflection. And it's in that instance, it's not really fair because Paul is the architect. He's the one who's explaining to us the nature of the new covenant. When Messiah came, as revealed in the Gospels, he comes, as Paul writes, he was born under the law, as we'll see. Was that, Galatians 3 or so? Or Galatians 2? He was born under the law. So his conversation is going to be about the Mosaic law covenant era, if you can call it that. It's Paul who comes on the scene After the redemptive work of Messiah that inaugurates or I should say doesn't inaugurate, but who explains to us, who gives us the theological explanation of what the new covenant is about. So now you ask, when was the new covenant started? Remember, we said we've got the Abrahamic covenant. We got the land covenant. We have the Davidic covenant. We have the new covenant. When does it start? When does it get ratified? That's the technical phrases that are used for covenants being established. And we learn that he ratifies the covenant at Passover because he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of sins, drink, all of it. So we know that he acknowledges the inauguration of the new covenant at the Passover, the day before his death, because All covenants are ratified by blood. And the new covenant is ratified by the blood of Messiah. So the Passover, anticipating the Lamb of God sacrifice, is stated by Yeshua when he raises the cup. All all the gospel writers say the same thing. This is the blood of the new covenant. He's not just talking about the cup. He's talking about what the cup symbolizes which would come to fruition the next day when he would be put on the altar, the cross, and then would be raised. Once that takes place, the new covenant has now started. The previous covenant has come to an end, which is the Mosaic law, and is fulfilled. And the empowerment of the Spirit of God is made available. Now, there's a transition period. The new covenant is ratified at, his, at the death of Messiah, but he still, in his resurrected state, appears with the disciples for 40 days. And the Spirit of God does not descend until the ascension of Messiah, when the 120 disciples are in the upper room. There is a transition period. And once the Spirit of God descends upon the disciples that are in the upper room, and some would argue only upon the 12 apostles Uh, Mattathias taking the place of Judas that there's a further transition period in the book of Acts to where Cornelius and Philip who deals with the Samaritans and Paul begins to uh, move the good news out to the Gentile peoples through his journeys and these this is like a transition now and then once the transition is completed we're now fully into that's why you read in the book of Acts you know Apollos only understood things with regard to the baptizing ministry of John. He didn't understand the baptizing ministry of the Spirit of God in light of the new covenant until Priscilla and Aquila explained it to him. Because there's a transition. Not everybody's getting all the information at one time. Not everybody's experiencing everything that everybody else is at the same time. There's a transition. But now in the 21st century, the transition is complete and has been completed for for quite a while. But the, the, So the point is there is this transition and the reason Paul is spoken of as Yeshua says when Paul is on his way to Damascus to persecute the believers it says Messiah makes himself known to him and then he, he, the Lord tells Ananias I'm sending a real special person to you he is to be my apostle to the Gentiles. And you're to pray for him so his eyes might be open because he has a special calling as one of my apostles. When he says the apostle to the Gentiles, he doesn't just mean he's going to go to those who are non-Jews. He doesn't mean that because Paul still goes to the Jews. He goes to the Jew first. He goes to the synagogues throughout the book of Acts. So how is this apostle to the Gentiles going and having ministry among the Jews? Because the sense of being an apostle to the Gentiles means something more, not less than, but more than merely telling the good news to Gentile peoples. Being the apostle to the Gentiles means he's inaugurating something new in God's program. And that is that the well of salvation is going to be opened up to the Gentile peoples of the world and Paul's going to be the catalyst for this new movement of God. And that new movement of God is characterized by the new covenant. And the new covenant has specific relevance to Israel. Make a new covenant with the house of Israel, etc. I understand that. But it goes beyond Israel to where all the nations of the earth become blessed. So up until the new covenant era, that wasn't happening. I mean, yeah, the Assyrians were blessed for a moment. And yes, Ruth was blessed as a Moabite. But not all the nations of the world were blessed until the good news goes out to the four corners of the earth. As Yeshua said, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel. Why? Because the new covenant is a covenant that is unique to Israel, to be sure, but also to the nation, God's work among the nations of the world. Paul is the architect of that. Or maybe I should say he's the explainer of that. So when... Uh, Talking to individuals and they and they say why do you always go to Paul? Why do you always go? because that's what Paul is tasked with he's tasked with explaining this and therefore we do move into his writings that explain this to us. Okay, so let me come back here. Um, all of this said under the phrase. What does it mean to be under law? Um, but these are important things. So first of all Romans chapter 2. Why don't you turn there? And let's see if we can get through this. We won't spend a lot, uh, a lot of time, but, you know, y- you can write these passages down and get a sense. In Romans chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So there's one phrase where, one place where he uses the phrase under law, which might help us to understand how he means it in Romans 6. So over here, what does he mean? He's telling us, number one, the Gentiles are not under this law, but the Jewish people are. Because in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, the whole focus is the world is alienated from God because of, of its sin. The Gentile peoples are sinners before God. They don't live up to their conscience. The Jewish people are sinners before God because they're given the law, but they don't obey it. And therefore, Paul is telling us, we're all sinners. You know, from the least to the greatest. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God for different reasons. But nevertheless, we've fallen short. Gentiles were not given the law. So the Gentiles might say, how can I be found to be a sinner when I was never told what I'm supposed to do? And God says, because in your mind, in your heart, you know what's right, but you don't do it. Now, you may not always know what's right, but more often than not, you do. And that time when you knew this was the right thing to do, you didn't do it. And that time when you knew this was the wrong thing to do, you still did it. And therefore, your your conscience becomes your judge. Now, the Jewish people are different. They had their conscience. That's true. But they had more than just their conscience. The problem with the conscience is there's nothing objective to judge your conscience by. So you could say, I don't feel guilty. I mean, Manson didn't feel guilty. You know, my conscience doesn't tell me I'm doing something wrong. Maybe it did at some point early in his life. I'm not arguing that. I'm simply saying that somebody could say, well, people born in this culture, that's not a wrong thing to do. Okay, fair enough. But there are still things that go beyond culture or even within your culture that you knew was right and you didn't do it. The unfortunate thing is, if you don't have an objective standard, you don't know if it's objectively right or wrong. You only know subjectively. And to some degree, our conscience is helpful in that regard. Remember, Scripture talks about having a seared conscience, a conscience that doesn't work. So a conscience that works will work in some instances. And when it does, we're still found to be sinners. I find the conscience to be likened to guilt. You know, guilt's not a bad thing. I know that when we go to psychiatrists and stuff, people tell us, don't feel so guilty. You should be, you know, you're, you're, you're destroying yourself. But guilt to me is like pain. None of us likes pain. But if we didn't have pain, our bodies would get hurt, right? It's because you feel pain when you put your hand on a hot stove that you move it away as quickly as you can. If it wasn't for pain, you'd be like lepers that can't feel. And because they can't feel, they Hurt themselves, and before long, their fingers are falling off. They become stubs, and they can't be be used. Or if you're a physical person, and you know, it's this looking at Angie in the garden to dance. You know, you twist your ankle. If you don't know, you twist your ankle. You can keep dancing on it. Next thing you know, you've now broken your ankle. You've done greater damage. Pain's a positive thing, though we don't like how it feels. It tells us something's wrong. Guilt is like that. Sometimes guilt's a good thing. There's a bad guilt. We fail guilty for things we shouldn't, I understand. But guilt generally is a good thing. It's telling us, don't do that. You know, this is bad. And if we keep violating our conscience, after a while our conscience becomes seared. And then we do things that are really bad and we don't feel anything. But it's better to have something that can stand outside of our conscience to tell us, you should be feeling bad about this. You know, that's what the law was to Israel in a way is, the law gave now Israel not the nations it wasn't given to the nations it was given to the house of Israel at Sinai and in given to Israel it gave them an objective standard by which they can now measure right and wrong if it wasn't what God wanted does it doesn't matter for example this is this was my point trying to make my point last week mark is that eating A pig, forgive me, you know, and I'm not advocating you eat it or not eat it. But in the ultimate scheme of things, the pig is not a better animal than a cow. They're just two separate animals. But if God says, for whatever reason, whether it's health or not, if God says, I don't want you to eat this, even though you and I may say, but what's wrong with eating that? You know, we don't find anything wrong. It's just another thing to eat. But if God says, I don't want you to eat that, it's wrong to eat it simply because God set the standard. So when ge- Israel is given the Mosaic law, they now have a standard. They don't have to debate. Should we eat pigs or not? Does it give us trichinosis, trichinella? Does it, is it good for us? Is it too much fat? We don't have to even discuss that. God says don't eat it. It's wrong to eat. The objective standard makes life really easy as long as you obey it. But if you don't obey it, it's transformed. It now is not the loving thing that gives us a standard. It becomes our judge. And But Paul's real point is it becomes the mechanism whereby God, who is our God, becomes not only our God, but becomes our judge. Because now he looks at us and says, I gave you this. You didn't obey. You didn't live up to it. So that's just sort of, you know, it, it, and this is why I think this analogy, I don't know if I mentioned this here, but I was thinking about it afterwards. That's why I see the Mosaic law like the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not a bad tree. It wasn't a worse tree than the elm tree or the oak tree or the maple tree or whatever trees are out there. It was just like all the other trees, equally created by God, equally beneficial and enjoyable by God, equally stated to be very good. But its purpose was different. Its purpose was to be a testing ground. And as long as Adam and Eve did not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it served as a witness to God's creative love and uh, joy in his creation. Once they violate his commandment not to eat of that tree, the tree becomes their judge. They're missing a piece of fruit. And the tree says, where did that piece of fruit go? And Adam and Eve say, we ate it. Ah, you weren't supposed to that tree which is a witness to God's creative beauty becomes the mechanism by which Adam and Eve and all of their posterity to you and I today and our children for generations to come, barring the Lord's return, are now judged sinners because of the fruit of a tree that was taken. Nothing wrong with the tree. It's wholly just and good. What was wrong was Adam and Eve eating of it And now that tree which is holy, just, and good turns into our judge. The law is like that. That which is holy, just, and good turns into our judge because we violate. it. So Paul here is saying the Gentiles aren't under the law in Romans 2.12, but the Jewish people are. And he says the law here means judgment because he says they will be judged not by but through the law. And he uses the Greek word dia, So the real meaning is the law is not the ultimate judge, but God is. And God will use the law to judge those who are under the law, showing them to be violators of his character and of his standard. The Gentiles will not be so judged. Why? Because the Gentiles are not under the law. The Jewish people are. So therefore, they will be judged through the law. We're trying to understand what does Paul mean in Romans 6, 14, and 15. We are not under law, but under grace. His use of the phrase here in 2.12 means something the Gentiles are not related to, but only the Jews are. So we can ask the question, under law, what did it mean for the Jews? It had to mean the Mosaic law. So when Paul says we're not under law, but under grace, he's got to be saying we're not under the Mosaic law, but under grace. That's what I'm trying to argue. And one of my uh, means of arguing that is how Paul uses the same phrase here in Romans 2.12. It can't be understood, in in my view, in any other way. Now, I said before, the word law in uh, Greek is the word namas. And because in the first, second centuries, there wasn't a word for legalism we could talk of legalism that has nothing to do with the law right we could talk say in some churches where they say unless you refrain from smoking gambling any other bad things you want to list playing cards i was dancing right i was at a, i was i was in a church early on no dancing no smoking no playing cards no mixed bathing right you know now what are, what are those things? Those things are legalisms, right? Now you're measuring your faith by the things that you're doing. You're becoming legalistic. and uh, so for, But you know, I have good memories of that place because it led me to faith you know, and other wonderful things. But, um, so in the first century, if I wanted to talk about that attitude that seeks to please God by refraining from those quote-unquote bad things... I would have to use the word namas to speak of I was under namas. What I mean is that those weren't Mosaic laws. Those weren't laws of God. Those were laws of this church leadership. And so what was I really under? I was under a legalistic pattern. But since I don't have the word legalism, how do I, I would say I was under these laws. And now you don't know what I really mean yet. You know, because you would say, oh, he means the laws of Moses. No, I didn't mean the laws of Moses. I meant the laws of this church. So, oh, so you don't mean law in the same way you mean the laws of Moses. You mean these legalistic rules. Yes, that's what I mean. So some would say in Romans 6, 14 and 15, we're not under legalism as a means of pleasing God. We're under grace by which we are made right with God by his acts of grace. Follow me? I'm arguing If we use our common sense, we might conclude that. But if we look at how Paul uses the phrase under law in other places, he doesn't use that phrase to denote being under legalism. He uses, at least in Romans 2.12, to speak of the Mosaic law and not just legalistic tendencies that one might have. So the law in this passage, Romans 2.12, means condemnation for those who have it and do not obey it. So it's no good having it if you don't obey it. And people will not be condemned, not because they have the law or not, but because they have sinned. So Paul is saying, if you have the law and you don't obey it, you'll, you'll be judged by the law. And the reason you're not obeying it is not because you don't value the law or because you don't think the law is important, but because you are a sinner. So now he's telling us something else about the law. The law is weak. It is, has its limitation. And what is its limitation? Most seriously, its limitation is it cannot empower people to do what they need to do to be pleasing to God. That's the problem with the law, or one of the problems. It tells us what God wants, but it doesn't help us to do it. Now, some might say, it's not fair of God to expect us to do something he knows we can't. So back during the Reformation period, Erasmus, who was one of the leading uh, philosophers and thinkers and theologians of his day, wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. And in that book, he was saying that ought requires can which means if one ought to obey then he can obey that God cannot this was his argument God cannot command Israel about what they ought to do if they're not able to do it that would be unfair that's what Erasmus wrote in his book the freedom of the will now I'm sharing this with you because these were two of Maybe the five most important books I've ever read. That just told you one. But I'm going to mention another them, But the five. If I was to have a list of the five most important books. These two as a pair. Become really critical for me. In my understanding of what the Bible was teaching. And why Paul has become so important to me. He, always was, he wasn't always this way. It's not like I came out of the womb saying oh man I can't wait to get into Paul. You know. It was a growing thing. And it came by way of teachers in my life. I don't mean teachers That I was in classes with I mean teachers by way of writers that wrote things that could have been hundreds of years ago that have made an impact on me um, that have been determinative of what I understand the scriptures to teach so Erasmus was saying we have a free will and because we have a free will God can only command us to do the things we can do otherwise it's not fair ought must require can was his major line and of course i always used to get that from my students how can you expect us to do this if you don't tell us this you know i said yeah it's a problem when you're a student i was there once but now that i'm a teacher you know i have i have these privileges but um and it seems rational and reasonable So in response to Erasmus, though we may not like everything this man wrote, this is a very critical book, and if you ever have the opportunity to read it, you will only benefit by it, but Martin Luther wrote a book entitled The Bondage of the Will. And so his point was, if our will was free, Erasmus may have a point, may have a point. But what he wants to argue is, ever since... Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Our wills have been bound. And we have become sinners in bondage. Now, I know we don't like that idea because we want to think we're autonomous. We're free. I can make choices. I'm not a robot. There's, Luther was not arguing against that. He wasn't saying that we, didn't have, we couldn't make decisions or choices. But all of our decisions and choices though not made for us, are constricted by our state of affairs, by, our, by who we are. So what Luther explains is that when Adam and Eve sin in eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, two things happen, not just one, two things. One is they become personally sinners. They have sinned. They violated God's command. But secondly, they not only are personally sinners, they have become sinners. That is to say, their very nature is now marred. And they are no longer free in the fullest sense of the word. What we talk about today, is the distinction between personal sin and original sin. Personal sin are the sins you and I commit. I point at you because you sin more than me. <laughs> not true. Not true. Just, just a little levity. Just a little thing here. Because I know things are getting a little heavy. Personal sin are the sins we commit personally. Original sin is the effect sin has had on us personally and collectively. So I always thought I was a sinner because I sinned. But that's not true. I sinned because I'm a sinner. That's Martin Luther's point. Because we have a sin yes, but I, I didn't want to call it that, and I'll tell you why. And But that's oftentimes... Yes, um, but the sin nature is not a thing. It's a condition that we inherit. So I don't, the reason I don't like the word nature is because, <laughs> see, now we're running into this, whole, all the dominoes. See how they're affecting? We're talking about sin. We're talking about how you interpret the Bible. We're talking about words. The problem with the word nature is we talk about human beings, human beings have one nature. It's called a human nature. It's different from a stone nature, or a tree nature, or an animal nature. We have what's called a human nature. But Yeshua, see, he has two natures. Because he's the God-man, he takes on human form. He has a divine nature and a human nature. Now, the problem with you and I is we have a human nature that has been affected by sin. That's why I don't want to call it a sin nature. We have a human nature that has been marred by sin. Yeshua has a human nature, but it's not been marred by sin. So Yeshua has two natures. We have one. Because Yeshua has two natures, he has two wills. Whereas you and I have one. He has two wills because he can say things like, when are you going to return? And the Lord says, it's not for me to know, only my Father in heaven. Well, you say, "No, wait a minute. If Yeshua is God, how can he, doesn't he have to know everything? And the answer is yes. As God, he knows everything. But because he has two natures, he can respond to anything through either one of those natures. So if he decides to answer your question by way of his human nature, which by nature is limited, he can say, I don't know. <laughs> but on the other hand... If he says, I will not entrust myself to any man because I know what's in all men, all men, human beings, he's now responding out of his divine nature in which he's omniscient. He knows everything. Now, all of us accept that. I know right now you're saying, wait a minute. You can't just cut and parse like that. But we all do it. Why? Because don't we say Yeshua died on the cross? How does he die? He dies because he's taken on a human form. He can't die as God. He can only die as A human being now there may be some debate here and we don't want to go down that road to drive us into heresy but the point is because of his humanity he can eat or he has to eat he can get tired he can say to the woman at the well i uh, or on the cross i thirst he can say to the woman at the well i'd like some water because i'm thirsty he can go to sleep in a boat because he gets tired but god never gets tired he never gets thirsty he never gets hungry So Messiah can respond to things by either nature because he has two of them. And he can respond to those things because he has, but he only has a single will. He can only do what God would have him to do. So when he responds through his human nature, he can only respond sinlessly. When he responds through his divine nature, he can only respond godly, which is another way of saying sinlessly. One's just a negative way of saying the other, right? If you're sinless, you're like God. Being like God means you're godly. So he has two natures, one will. You and I are just the opposite. We have one nature, a human nature. You try to fly, you don't have a bird nature. You can't fly, you know? You and I have one nature. But once we've come to know the Lord... We have two wills, as it were. We have a will that can operate out of the effect or the work of the Holy Spirit on our lives. And we can respond to him properly. Or we can respond to him out of our marred nature, or respond to things out of our marred nature, which means we will sin. So now back to the question of our will is bound. I say that we have, our will is in bondage because when Adam and Eve sinned, we all became sinners. When a child is born, though the child has not committed any personal sin, remember making the distinction between personal sin and what is referred to as original sin, the sin that affects our nature, the child is born is not a sinner personally. But the child born is a sinner nonetheless. That's why that child will die. The only reason why children die is not because they sin because they haven't yet. They die because the wages of sin is death. And what did the Lord say in the garden? The day you eat of that tree, dying, you will die. The reason why infants die, in some infants, in Childbirth is because they're sinners by nature and through Adam. And the effect of that marred nature is death and destruction. That's why we need the salvation of God's grace, because if it's left to ourselves, we can't get it. So when Erasmus says ought necessitates can, Martin Luther says ought does not necessitate, can, if the will is bound to sin. And so now he wants to argue the way that we are released from this dilemma. Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I do. Why is it that he doesn't want to do them? Because the Spirit of God is alive in him and he knows what's right, but he can't do it. And if he's left to the law, which he said, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrews of Hebrew, blameless with regard to the law. If he's left to the law, he can't do what he ought to do because sin does not allow him to do what he should do because his will is bound by sin. So if you've never read The Bondage of the Will, uh, this will be explained a lot clearer (laughs) than what I have like that. Okay, but just to just back up, does everybody get a sense of the of what it when we say we are sinners, we're not just talking about, oh, I lied yesterday on my income tax. We're talking about condition we are in because of the effect that we have had by virtue of Adam uh, in the garden that has rendered us all when we come into this world as sinners before God, even though we may not have done anything. Exactly. Yes, and that's the counterpart. We stand righteously before God because of what he's done for us in rectifying this situation that we can't do for ourselves. And I'll tell you, when I read that book, it it freed me. You know, it freed me not to be a sinner, but not to be striving to gain God's favor. It's grace, you know, and that's what Luther's really all about, right? In Romans uh, one fifteen, or whatever it is, uh, well, earlier than that, 1 eight, that, he's, that he said, uh, the just shall live by faith. That was the whole thing that got Luther to see, hey, it doesn't matter how many times I flagellate myself, how many times I kneel going up the steps of St. Peter's Basilica or whatever it is in Rome, nothing that I do is going to be enough to get me right with God. It's by faith through the grace of God, you know, that does that. And um, so that book was one of those key uh, things for me. It may not be for everybody, but it was for me. And it was that phrase, you know, that ought implies can. Rashly, yeah, it seems reasonable. You don't ask children to do what they can't do, then punish them for it. But, but that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is we have a condition that has robbed us of our freedom. And so what is true freedom? True freedom is not doing what you want. True freedom is doing what God wants. So that's why when Paul says, I'm a slave of Messiah, a doulos, which is the word for slave, he's expressing his great freedom because it's in slavery to God that we are most free. And we think that freedom is when we act any way we want, which is anarchy, which is rebellious. You know, it's, uh, it's a funny thing. And by the way, one of the examples of this, although we miss some of this. See, these are the domino effects. We say things without realizing the ramifications. When we think of angels, angels are the most free beings of all, yet they're the most limited. They only can do what God tells them to do, yet they're the most free. You know, because prior to, when angels were angels, and then there was a period, this is my understanding, a period of testing, some of the angels rebelled with Satan, and what do they become? They become demons. Why? Because they are enslaved to their rebelliousness against God, so everything they do is what God would not want. But the angels of God, the holy ones of God, the ones that are most free, are the angels who no longer can sin, there's no more rebellion going on, they are now, is my word, permanentized in their service to God. And as such, they're the most free beings in the universe right now. One day, you and I will be most free when we are in heaven and we no longer are affected by the very presence of sin, nor of its power and certainly not its penalty. Then we are free completely, but you no longer can sin. It's not that you no longer will sin. You no longer can sin because your sin nature is gone, you know. So now one last thing. Here's a domino effect just to show you. So you ask the question, when Yeshua was tempted by the evil one, could he have sinned? And the answer is no, he can't. Because he does not have a sin nature. And because he is God come in the flesh, he can't sin. It's not that he was not merely able to sin. He was not able. It's not only that he was able not to sin. He was not able to sin. And that's what you and I will one day be. And when we are, we'll be most conformed to the image of Messiah. And we'll be most free. (laughs) Yeah, um, that's great. I, we didn't, here's another The dominoes are starting to multiply, right? I just didn't want to go down everything. Let me suggest a couple of things. The word temptation and test are oftentimes used interchangeably, but they're different. When the evil one tempts, I, would use, I wouldn't necessarily change the words, but the meaning is to lure to sin. When God tempts, such as Adam, uh, such as Abraham, the purpose is not to lure to sin because God doesn't do that. James tells us that. God does not tempt any man. But it doesn't mean He doesn't test people, which means to uh, set up so as to prove the person. For example, Job. He allowed Satan to attempt to lure him to sin, but from God's perspective, it was an opportunity for Job to demonstrate or prove his loyalty to God and his righteousness. Because God says he's the most righteous man in all the earth. So from God's perspective, testing is meant to demonstrate something good. And from Satan's perspective, it's an attempt to lure to sin. Now in the case of Yeshua, as the writer to the Hebrew says, He was tempted in all points like we, but did not sin. So it doesn't mean he was tempted every way you and I are tempted. Just as it doesn't mean we are tempted every way he's tempted. For example, when was the last time you were tempted to turn stones to bread? Probably never. You know, why? Because you can't do it. So Satan's not going to tempt you to do something that's impossible for you to do. So similarly, but Jesus, because he's God, he can turn that stone to bread for a personal need he might have. And there was nothing wrong with him doing that if he so chose. Right? I mean, it doesn't say he was led into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and couldn't eat anything. I mean, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the evil one. He chose to be in a state of fasting and devotion and dependency upon God. The reason it was a sin for him to turn the stones to bread was not because turning stones to bread is a, a bad thing. He's going to turn rocks to water. He's going to bring water out of rocks. He's going to bring manna from heaven. It's not wrong to do these miraculous things, but it's wrong when Satan says to do it. You know, so he's not going to obey him. But back to the point. I understand, this is my understanding, that when it says he was tempted in all points, it doesn't mean he was tempted in the same ways you are. He wasn't tempted to take heroin. He wasn't tempted to do drugs. He wasn't tempted to have illicit sexual uh, relations. Uh, Those kinds of temptations might be temptations some of us or all of us have had. Those are not the kind of temptations he had. The kind of temptations Messiah had were temptations that had to do with his calling and his purpose. If you bow and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Because they rightfully belong to him, Satan's saying, I'll give them to you. He certainly could give it to him, I believe, because he is the prince of the power of the air. Now, there may be disagreement on that point, but that's my understanding. But when he says tempted in all points, I think what he means is he was tempted through the same avenues through which we all experience temptation. And John seems to indicate there are three. In John, I think it's chapter 2, verse 16 or 316. It says he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. So when you think of the lust of the, that's King James, I think, lust of the flesh, eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three gateways, let's call them that, through which all of Satan's temptations come. So in the Garden of Eden, Eve saw the fruit, lust of the the eyes, saw that it was good for food, lust of the flesh, and could make one wise, pride of life. When you look at Yeshua's temptations, same three gateways. Turned the stones to bread, lust of the flesh. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world, the lust of the eyes. Said, jump from the pinnacle of the temple and everyone will worship you. That's what he came for, the pride of life. So he was certainly lured to do all those things, but he couldn't do them. And now you would say, well, then why did Satan do that? And I would say, because Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And he may very well have thought, and most likely did, that he could get uh, Messiah to sin. What his temptations reveal is that he didn't sin, but I would also say that he couldn't sin. That, I believe that happens when we're in the presence uh, of God and we're delivered completely from the presence of sin. We still live in a fallen world. We still bear a sin nature. We're still sinners. Paul said, I'm the greatest of sinners at the end of his life. I would think at the end of his life, he'd said, I'm not as bad a sinner as I was when I first started. But at the end of his life, in Timothy he says, I'm the, great, I'm the worst sinner of all. So we're always sinners until the time that we are removed uh, from sin and sin is removed completely from us. Presently, we're not culpable for our sin. Praise God for that. Uh, in other words, we're not uh, held responsible for our sin in terms of the eternal ramifications of being a sinner. We may experience um, uh, yeah, we may have consequences for sin. I mean Paul says in Corinthians he prayed for the destruction of the flesh of one man because of the sin he was involved with in 1 Corinthians 5 or so. Um, and he certainly spends so much of his time dealing with, Dealing with sin in the congregation and dealing with sin in the lives of the people in the congregation to reveal that um, we're always having to deal with it and always having to offer ourselves as living sacrifices.